Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast and uh, welcome Darren Burgess. G'day Brookie, how are you going? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, we've got a very special guest today, why don't you introduce him? Yeah, we have. Uh, uh, we've got Alec Buckfield here who's among, um, wears a few hats actually, but um, chiefly a biomechanist, but um, rather than me talk about him, um, we might bring him on and he can tell us a bit about himself. Yeah, take us through your uh, your journey, Alec. Sure. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so I've uh, come um, initially from University of Western Australia. I did my undergraduate and masters there. And then at the end of that, I was able to fortunately secure a um, position at the South Australian Sports Institute as the biomechanist there. Um, they hadn't had one up until. Uh, or permanent one anyway, and up until I got there. Um, so that was a really fantastic experience straight out of the master's program to um, uh, to build my own uh, service um, delivery. Um, so uh, it was a fantastic um, learning opportunity for a start, but also a fantastic professional opportunity. The people there were just amazing. Um, Pete Borden, especially my manager, at, uh, at SASE was was just fantastic in um, guiding me on how to turn what I was doing from an academic perspective into a very practical perspective. Um, and I stayed there uh, working with lots and lots of different sports, with um, uh, lots of individual sports, uh, did a lot of work with rowing, with cycling, with athletics, with swimming, um, with canoe kayak, um, the, the sprint canoe kayak program, but also a lot of team sports. Um, there were uh, the football program. There was a, um, as in a, a soccer football program, a, um, a basketball, a baseball, um, all sorts of um, team sport programs there as well. Then, come uh, 2008, I decided to take a bit more control over where I was going with my career. I looked at what I was doing at SASE and thought, well, you know, I could probably stay here for the next um, two, three four Olympiads and not really do much different and kind of um, just uh, sort of cycle through the, the same Olympic cycle um, from uh, uh, from four-year period to four-year period. So I thought, well, um, I've got an opportunity now um, with a bit of financial security and what um, my wife and I were doing um, to be able to go off and try to be a consultant which is what I did. So I started off a, um, a sports science consultancy um, with a um, very biomechanics um, bent to it um, in late 2008. And that um, has flowed on to work with, a lot of work with um, Burjo, um, but also work with um, Cycling Australia, uh, with the track cycling program, with Port Adelaide before and during the time that um, Burjo was there. And with a lot of different groups here, there and everywhere, um, with uh, a, a lot of the AFL teams being able to, um, in the early days, turn a lot of the GPS information they were getting into more usable reports. Um, uh, and then most recently, I've been working a lot with the Philadelphia Phillies in Major League Baseball, um, helping them with um, biomechanics support. So it's been a long journey. There's been um, times where I haven't had a lot of clients and times where I've probably got uh, just enough and times where I've probably got too many. So um, it's been a, a bit of a, a fun fun journey going through um, as a consultant um, from 2008. 
Yeah, fascinating story. Uh, you know, most of the people we have on, I guess, have sort of tended to work with with teams and, and, and in uh, in sporting environments. And uh, to to go it alone really is uh, is quite is very brave and, uh, and and quite unique. And I can imagine you've had your ups and downs. I want to start sort of at the end, really, uh, with what you're doing now with the Phillies, because obviously you're you're in Australia, you're not in in, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, how does that work? How can you uh, how can you be a consultant uh, from a distance? And is that the way things are going to go in the future? Um, well, I think there's going to be more of a mix. To answer your second question first, um, yeah. it's I, I think it's um, it, perhaps some some lessons out of the um, the pandemic have been that um, you don't necessarily need to be in the same room to have an effect on what's going on which is a lot of, which is the the um the sort of normal paradigm in in what's going on from a in a sporting perspective if you're not in the room you're not in the conversation um but i think um what we've learned from um the last couple of years is that if you're not in the room you can still be part of the conversation and as sporting clubs open up to that and realize what's going on with that they're going to be able to access talent from all over the world um which is um really exciting you know, um, when you've, I've, I've just, I've seen recently that um, uh, Burjo, you've um, struck up a, or re reconnected with um, Phil Coles at the, um, at the Celtics. Um, and that sort of um, connection is, is just going to become more, uh, more prevalent. And um, it's only going to be a good thing that we um, are increasing our connections and being able to access people who know who um, have specific knowledge from all over the globe so really from, quickly and really easy. From a, from a practical point of view, I mean, how does it work? Take us through what, what you, you know, how you work it with them. What do you do with them? Uh, I, I, I can't be too specific, unfortunately. And, no, but um, is, it, uh, is it Zoom or is it, uh, I mean, is it, oh, yeah, uh, you know, written stuff or is it, uh, you know, uh, yeah, group, group, um, so group the, stuff? The, yeah. time, the time zone overlaps are actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, um, I've, I've um, had two meetings already this morning and it's like 8.30 Adelaide time. Um, but uh, uh, the time zone at the moment is three and a half hours difference. Right. Um, so I normally um, connect with them uh, if we need to have a meeting at 5.30 Adelaide time at um, two o'clock in the afternoon uh, Philly time. Um, and then we meet for a bit and then um, I can get the kids ready and get kids out the door and... Uh, and then continue on with the work once they're at school. So um, as far as the uh, the time zone overlaps go, it's, it's it's really pretty good. And then the summer, it's only like a, an hour and a half difference PM to AM. So it's if it's five o'clock in the afternoon there, it's six thirty in the morning here. Um, so the the Zoom meetings afternoon to morning are actually um, really really good. And um, to be honest, the baseball groups are actually in a really good position to take advantage of this in the first place because they're already distributed. They've got um, their major league team in one city and then for the Phillies, we've got our AAA, um, which is the, if you don't know baseball, it's kind of their first first reserve team. That's um, an hour north and then the um, uh, AA is an hour where are we going west? And then the high A's now east, and then the spring training complex is down in Florida, and that's got their low A team there. So they're already distributed, and even some of the staff are distributed across the country as well. So um, they're very used to to meeting up via Zoom. 
Right. And, and there's probably only been like one or two meetings since I started there in April that I've kind of thought, well, it would be really good to be in the room for this one. Um, it's, um, it's, it's actually been quite easy to, to negotiate the, the long, long distance stuff, especially when you're working so heavily with data. Now, I, I say I can't go into too much, um, and, uh, but it, it's essentially the, the markless motion capture that Hawkeye are providing, and there are other providers, but we're using Hawkeye, um, from in-game um, uh, in -game movements. So we're getting every pitch from, uh, from a couple of different, uh, from lots of different levels, um, from the uh, pitcher and the hitter movements um, at uh, 300 frames a second. Um, and that we're getting centroids from um, wrist, elbow, shoulders, hips, um, heels, uh, head. So we can actually build up a picture of what's going on and get the kinematics of the picture and then turn that into something that is useful for, for the coaches. Um, now, um, even though I said I can't, you know, we're, we're, I think we're, we kind of recognise that um, uh, in, in sport there's no real secret source a lot of the time. Everybody's pretty much doing the same things. Um, and but I, I think the, the caveat to that is at the early adoption stage, um, especially when there's an imbalance in staffing and technology, and that's kind of the area that we're in at the moment. So perhaps in a few years we'll be able to talk more about what we're what we're doing. Um, but right now, I think when there's when we feel there is a bit of an imbalance, then it's probably time to um, to to be very very in house about what we uh, what we've got going on. I understand, Burjo. How did it come about, mate, the, the Phillies role? Like how does someone from Adelaide doing some consulting um, land a job with, uh, you know, one of the, the big franchises in US sport? Um, well, they already had a relationship with Adelaide because they've been sending players out to the Adelaide Giants um, baseball team, which is the um, Australian Baseball League franchise in, in Adelaide. Um, the coach of the Adelaide Giants is the um, is the, well was the coach up until this year of their of the Phillies High A affiliate in Clearwater, and he's now taken on a different role in the organisation. So he's he's still there, um, and so there was a an ongoing relationship between Adelaide and Philadelphia to begin with. Then when the minor league season got um, canned last year, we sat down um, and I'd, I'd been helping them out a bit. I hadn't been, um, at, well, I'd been, I would say, consulting to them, but not actually, you know, charging them for it because they didn't have a heap of money to do to, to be able to, to pay for that. But um, I could see that this was a growing area. In, uh, as in baseball was, was going to be a growth area. Um, and it was a sport that I have really enjoyed um, working with in the past and I really enjoyed as a, as a spectator, as a fan as well. So um, I was just helping out occasionally just to, to talk to them about what it is that they went, they went where they want to go with their organisation and the opportunities that I can see um, for them in the sports science and, um, and data space. Um, so we were talking last year at the uh, as after the minor league season got canned, and then um, saying we've probably got an opportunity in the 2021 ABL season to showcase what we can do in Adelaide um, to support players coming in, and to to say well, we have a um, a setup here that we can uh, where we can accommodate 
um, good quality players for winter training um, and we can give good information back to the um, the major league team um, so they can send perhaps send better players and get good information back um, that they can incorporate into their development plan going forward. So we did that in the 2021 season with some um, help from um, uh, Baseball Australia um, with some of the equipment we have here in Adelaide. And um, the Phillies got it and they enjoyed what they got from us um, at the Giants. And then it just so happened that they were in the middle of a hiring process for biomechanists. And so they said, am I interested? And I said, well, yes, I am, but I'm not leaving Adelaide. And they said, yep, that's we're, we're happy with that. Um, and that's how the process got started. And, and uh, I guess the thing that stands out from uh, that conversation and would perhaps to some of our listeners is that you volunteered your time. Um, talk us through the decision for that or getting getting very little money for the amount of work that you were doing. You saw an opportunity that to provide a service and, and um, yeah, give me a thought process around that. Well, it, that was kind of... It, it was the opportunity. It was looking at where the where the league was, um, what is going to be happening with the league possibly in the future, and deciding to invest some of my time, um, kind of on spec, um, to uh, to help grow the Adelaide Giants franchise here, so that when money did become available, first of all, we were in a good position to take advantage of it, and second of all, I was going to be the person that was going to be in a good position to take advantage of that from my own perspective. So it was a bit selfless and a bit selfish at the same time, um, but it was, um, you know, you, you don't want to spend too much time on spec um, in that sense. You don't want to be volunteering all your time to do something like that, but you want to be um, looking ahead and saying, I see an opportunity in the future. I'm going to invest a, a proportionate amount of my time to uh, into this venture um, to put ourselves in a good position to take advantage of something that comes along if it does come along. Yeah, nice, man. I, I like that thinking. I guess that, that leads us down the path of the consultancy and you and I have been in contact sort of intermittently over the last, uh, wow, 15 years, 16 years. Um, and there's been some, as you said earlier, some highs and lows. Uh, there, It seems to me within the industry now, um, there are a lot of people dropping out of, let's call it the more secure employment within team sports, although at the moment nothing is secure. Um, into this consultancy realm, you were one of the very early people to do it in 2008, you said. Um, how's that gone? Give us some of the pitfalls and uh, and some of the attractions of it and, and perhaps a, a word of advice or two for, um, yeah, for those thinking to go down the same path. Because it seems really attractive. The grass is always greener, as you know. So when you're in the day-to-day -day and your week determined, is determined by how you know, 20 guys or girls perform on the weekend um, or how a coach wakes up and feels that morning. Um, but give us some of the uh, pitfalls of, of your world. Um, I, I think to start with, I'll go back to what I kind of said when, um, when I was first talking about this and saying that I was very fortunate in that we were in a financial position for me to be able to do it. Um, mm. So uh, 
it, it wasn't one of those things where you kind of look at it and say the grass is greener financially um, because it was a big step and um, I wasn't sure of any um, uh, any return going forward. Um, uh, but we as a family were in a position where I could do that. So um, I, it was an exciting venture to begin with um, and so that's that's kind of why I made the jump. And I'd already kind of um, worked out with um, at, at Sassy that I, I wanted something more. So th this was the, the something more. Um, the, the difficult thing for me as a biomechanist is that biomechanics as a service is really hard to sell um, to, to, to any club. Um, and it's really been up until the, um, uh, the, the explosion in biomechanics in baseball that it's actually been an attractive proposition from people, for people getting consultants in. The work I've been doing with, with clubs really hasn't been as uh, biomechanist. It's been a lot of um, data wrangling. Um, it's been a lot of, uh, um, you know, what would you call it? Um, streamlining of services and making sure that the data coming in uh, is turned around quickly and, and produced in reports quite quickly. Um, so it's not really been um, a great move as a biomechanist to do that. Um, it'd be much easier being a physiologist or a strength conditioning person to be able to to provide that as a as a consulting service going forward. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's been it's probably what you would say to people who are considering it is that it's hard work. It's um, you, I wouldn't go into it with um, an expectation that it's just going to flow easily. You've got to put a lot of work in the, on, the, on the business side of it to make sure that it actually works properly. Um, and just talking to people uh, who are coming out and trying to, to do the same sort of thing, guys like um, uh, Ian McEwen, um, a good friend of ours, um, you and I, um, Burjo, um, that you know, the putting putting in that work around the business development side of things is so, so important when you're just starting out. Um, some of the, one of the biggest um, pitfalls really for me has been um, finding ways to have continuing service. Um, so you'd have a contract that's, um, that will end at some point and you're investing so much time into servicing the contract that you're not going out and finding the next work, which is very hard in a, in a sports situation as well because if, you're, um, if your core skills are in a certain sport and you are consulting to a team, then to go off and, and actually approach other teams to say, hey, my contract's finishing with these guys, can we talk about, you know, bring me on next year because there's a long lead time in starting the conversation and actually getting work done. Um, you know, it's a six to 12 month lead time a lot of the times in, in, these, uh, in these roles, especially when budgets are set quite early in the year. So um, your, yeah, your next financial year's budget um, for a club might already be set now at the start of the year. So um, the, being able to, to, to see the opportunities going forward is, a, um, is quite a difficult um, tightrope to walk. Um, and the, 
the the real times when you when I've not had much work have come when contracts are finishing around the same time and they're not renewed and suddenly I've got I've, I've gone from too much work just about to no work at all because the contracts are finished and I haven't put in that six month lead time work to actually um, you know get the next contract. Um, so that's been the the real kind of up and down cycle um, with with a lot of the consulting work. It is it is really hard to do it um, and to have it uh, being a continuing um, a continuing thing going forward. And as I say, I'm very lucky to have that financial support to be able to do that. I guess um, the thing that that strikes me um, when I've considered it, or you know, speaking to other people like Maccas and um, is that business development side that you talk about. Um, wh- what have you found to be the most effective way to do that? How do you sell yourself in an industry where that looks down on people who sort of stick their neck up too much? How, how, and you, you are um, one of the most humble, sort of unassuming people you could ever meet. For those who haven't seen you, nicknames brains from the Thunderbirds because that's your appearance and mannerisms and you know that's I hope I'm not offending you you know um we know known each other long enough for that how do you sell yourself very it's very difficult to do um the I think the, the the best bit of advice um that I had from um, from a couple of people. First one was um, well, first one was uh, actually Maddie Clements, who is now the acting director of the AIS, I think. Um, who just before I went off and just, sorry, yeah, just before I went off and did my consultancy, she started her off her own sports psychology consultancy, and we were friends from our time at SASE, and also because I was working with uh, Shane Kelly with cycling at the same time. Um, so um, sh- she was. She was trying to get me to do a business plan, um, and I was kind of looking at it going, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I need to. I'm not big enough to do that. And then um, Jane, my wife, was on at me as well, saying, you need to do a business plan. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And that was probably one of the, the, um, the things that was able to clarify a lot of the, the business development stuff in my own head is. Um, you know, it, it, when you do a business plan, it's not just you know mission statements and that sort of thing. It's it's identifying the market that you're actually trying to to tap into, identifying how it is that you're actually going to try and tap into that market. Um, and even though it might not be something that you are putting down on paper and it's like a roadmap that you're going to follow, it at least gets you thinking about these sort of issues. Um, and so uh, I did that. And um, it was obvious that the promotion side of things was going to be the really difficult thing for me to do because I'm not well known um, and it's not something that I have kind of sought. And to be a consultant, you need to, as you say, advertise yourself in an industry that does look down on people who are putting their hand up and saying, hey, look at me, how, look how great the stuff I'm doing is. Um, and uh, so from a business perspective, I've done very, very poorly in that sense. Um, but from a personal perspective, I'm very happy with the way that I've approached it, and that's to work with good people and 
rely on those good people to to sell what I do. Um, and uh, it, it might not have um, helped me to get a lot of work, um, it, it, perhaps enough work. Um, that might be it's probably one of the things that has contributed to the big dips, but it's something that I'm very happy with the way that I've approached looking back over time. I don't think I would have changed much of the way that I do things other than to, to try and find other avenues to uh, and other sports perhaps to work with just as contracts were, were starting to come to their end. It's a, a fascinating um, uh, change from turning up every single day at, at SASE uh, as you were with, with guaranteed sort of uh, a guaranteed day and a guaranteed program and guaranteed sports. But um, just, just sort of pivoting a little bit, um, we've had plenty of conversations around um, some of the frustrations with the industry and some of the frustrations with attempting to apply some research into, uh, into practice. Um, without sort of going into specific names or clubs or, um, or um, fitness coaches or um, technical coaches, uh, what are some of the frustrations that you've experienced or, or just frustrating scenarios that we inside Clubland don't um, or have presented to you and, and some of the sort of basic research principles, whether it be in Biomex, Gillac, the GPS stuff, that you've done and that your expertise is, um, what what aren't we listening to? Um, I I don't. Well, I mean, there's always going to be frustrations when you're coming at a problem from a different perspective, which is essentially what I've been doing um, with a lot of these issues, um, given my history from in biomechanics and working in uh, teams where they typically don't have biomechanists involved. Um, so when you're talking about the, from the data side of things, um, being able to, um, to work with people who are almost, um, I, I don't know, I wanna say literate, but that's not, not quite right. Um, it's it's um, people who are, who are looking and trying to understand the data in, at, at the the level that I want to wants to work at, um, rather than working at a superficial level. Um, but having said that, um, when you're in clubland, you that that's the time that you've got. You've got to be able to to um, take a take a report, take a quick look at it, and understand what's going on. So you, you don't have the time to get into it from an in-depth perspective. Um, and so possibly. Some of the frustrations is uh, looking at the um, the potential um, with a lot of these different technologies, and saying uh, that there is so much untapped potential in there, particularly in things like the accelerometer use in uh, in GPS, and well, you know the the, the GPS units. Um, and and areas such as that and. Um, so, and, and perhaps new technologies as well, and the the um, the way that um, clubs are, are very drawn to the shiny thing and and getting the new technology on board, and not really considering the the people that are that should be driving the innovation 
within the uh, within the club. I wrote an article with um, Ted Polglaze a few few years ago saying, um, oh, what do I call it? People, not technology, are the drivers of innovation in elite sport, or something like that. Um, and that's kind of um, you know one of the, one of the bigger frustrations is that you, clubs will be more ready to invest in technology than they are in people, um, which is you know totally backwards because it's the people who are going to be able to take the technology or even take the te- take the new technology, but even take the old technology and extract more out of it than than you're going to be able to when you just get this new shiny thing. Um, and probably the other frustration from a biomechanics perspective is um, just that uh, you, it's people who are coming in from a sports science um, in, in, in a sports science role have that almost a firewall between the coaching and the sports science a lot of the time, whereas biomechanics and skill acquisition bridge that divide, but you're still seen as um, as part of the sports science group, and so it's very difficult to get that influence. On the on the technique side and the coaching side, um, particularly if you're not in the room, um, in in a lot of cases, if you leave the room, then you're out of the conversation and things go off in a different direction that you could have, you know, had a uh, had an influence on earlier, but it's gone too far now for you to have an influence after it's after the conversation's moved on. So th- they're probably a couple of the bigger frustrations. Um, from working outside clubland to inside clubland. So, Alec, how do how do you handle the uh, you know the coach who thinks that uh, you know all this skill acquisition science stuff is a load of rubbish, and you know that the coach knows all about skill acquisition because that's what what they do. Um, so, I'm sure you've come across that sort of uh, <laughs> that scenario before, where you've been brought into a club and yet the the coach doesn't really buy in. So, how do you handle that sort of situation? Um, I think uh, you need to see it from the coach's point of view as well because, you know, 99% of the time we're talking about the same things. We're asking the same questions. We're asking how do we get this guy to be better? Um, and the service that biomechanics and acquisition offer is not to, to go in there and say this is the way to do things. It's to go in and say we have a problem, let's work together to solve it. Um, and I'm here to to throw up ideas and to throw up scenarios and perhaps throw up data that um, that almost confounds your um, your beliefs and, and 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 what you see. Now, if you can explain that away from a coaching perspective, um, and you you can sort of say, yes, I see what this data is saying, but I I think we need to go off in this other direction because of this, then that is an absolute valid way of um, of interacting between the, of, of managing that interaction between biomechanics acquisition and and the coaching group. Um, so uh, it's um, it's almost a, a, a shared understanding, and that understanding, you know, I say shared understanding, but that understanding has really got to be driven by the the practitioner coming in to to be able to say. Um, everything that you as a coach and your accumulated knowledge over this, you know, over, over your whole career and the accumulated knowledge of the sport over however many 150 years or whatever that the sport's being played and how things are done, um, is that still valid? Um, but we've got to work, find a way to, to work together to get the most out of what's in front of us. Fair enough. Um, change your tack slightly. I, I 
I couldn't uh, leave this conversation go whether I've got the two of you together without talking about GPS because uh, probably two of the world authorities on, on GPS have obviously been around for a long time now and you two, are, it's probably fair to say, were early adopters of, uh, of GPS and so on. So where are we at now? You mentioned uh, you know, the potential uh, increased use of accelerometers and so on. Just summarise what you know the, the, the GPS journey, I guess, over the last 10 years and, and where we're at now as to uh, you know, what we can get out of it. Um, well, I probably, the, my GPS history probably started um, even oh, 20 years ago. I think when I first came into SASE in 2001, um, the GP sports units, I think, were just being brought on board. And I'm pretty sure within the first even couple of weeks of me being there, they had Neil Craig knocking on the door saying, how do we use well, talking about biomechanics to begin with, because, you know, he used to be at SASE and he was apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, was dead against having a biomechanist there. And so he wanted to <laughs> meet the new guy and, and you know, put him through put him through his paces kind of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, so I've been um, exposed to the unit since then and working in such a small um, uh, sports science team at SASE meant that you were working very closely with the other um, with the other disciplines. And so I was working very closely with the physiologists to, to get this new information and say, okay, what is it that we can get from it? Um, and again, how, how do we extract the most from, from this, um, this information that we're getting? Um, and at that stage, Catapult was still um, the small rowing system, um, you know, a box that we'd stick on a, um, on a, uh, on a, um, scaling uh, a, a single scale or a, um, and then just look at the um, the trace um, the GPS trace to define you know the speed versus stroke rate and then use the accelerometer to define stroke rate and then get the accelerometer to look at boat movement and um, and go from there and then the, the units got miniaturized and were able to be put on teams and that's where Virgo started coming in, I'm pretty sure. Did you start working with the, the GP Sports or the Catapult units when they were first miniaturized? Nah, the GP Sports at 2000 and end of 2004. Yeah, so, and then you kind of came to the South Seas and said, I want to get more from these, and I agreed, and then yep. that's how we started working together. Sure. Um, and, and that was, um, you know, talk that, that was looking at, um, getting more from the, the GPS signal and instead of just looking at the velocity, looking at the velocity and distance, looking at the acceleration. And very, I've been doing a lot of work with cycling. I've been looking at it, um, the power meters and saying, well, how do we turn a GPS unit into a proxy power meter? Um, and so that's, that's where a lot of our early work was going. And then I kind of pulled back from that a bit when I was doing some of the stuff with the, the different clubs because... Um, uh, the, I just felt that they weren't ready for that information, and to some extent, they probably still aren't ready for that information. I think we've um, we've got the we've still got the opportunity to incorporate um, acceleration um, as a as as in GPS acceleration, not accelerometer acceleration, within the um, the reporting um, and treat the the change of speed as something that's um, over change of speed over time um, as a really important variable in the um, in the whole mix of things. Um, so as uh, as far as the last ten years goes, I think there's been much better incorporation of a lot of these elements into the day to day reporting. Um, 
but it's a slow process and there's still a lot that we can get um, out of these units, particularly in the um, stride to stride accelerometer accelerations, um, which is where my PhD is. So it's, it's a, I've got a bit of a vested interest in, in the use of this, um, but um, I still think it's a real growth area that we can tap, tap into and get a lot more out of now that people are almost ready for it. They're, 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 they're looking at the reports and saying kind of what we were back in the day and saying, we want more out of it. We, we want to be able to, to take this and, and get more information on um, where, uh, on an, an athlete's condition essentially and say, you know, return to play. Are they, are they ready to come back to play um, through looking at their, their stride to stride accelerometer accelerations? Would you say that's, that's a fair summary there, Berger? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people have heard, especially on this podcast, uh, enough from my opinion on, on the GPS. So um, I, what I'd be keen to, to speak to you about, we've only got a few minutes left, is just on that, the acceler accelerometry accelerations. Um, tell us how we can use that better. You mentioned the stride to stride variation on people, and you and I have done a, a fair bit of work on that. But my concern is um, the accuracy of it. Um, so if you could just have a, a quick comment on that and uh, without giving away any of your secret sauce, um, can you uh, yeah tell us how field sport athletes should be or field sport practitioners should be using it more effectively or could uh, be using it? Yeah, I don't think I've actually got much secret sauce left on that because I've I've published a bit on it outside from the <laughs> PhD. So um, I I think um, the the potential of the accelerometer accelerations is that. Um, it's giving you a much higher fidelity um, analysis on what's going on in the body stride to stride. Um, of course, having it up um, high on the torso is going to be not great um, as far as uh, trying to measure centre of mass movements. But one of the things I've found when I was um, doing the PhD, it, it, and to go back a step, um, when I started doing this, actually um, it was off the back of a project that I was doing for Jason Weber um, for Freo. And um, I, I, when Jace came and said, I want to do this, I thought, no, that's not going to work. It's up in the upper torso. It's, you're not going to get a good clean signal from that. And so I tried it and I did get a good clean signal from it. Um, if you're able to to not exceed the, um, the kind of, uh, the the limits on what that data can be used for. If you try and read too much into it, then that's you know where it gets a bit sketchy. So you need to find that sweet spot about um, what the information can provide and the um, the accuracy of it from that um, from the upper torso location. Um, and so I'm I'm comfortable that you can get good uh, stride to stride accelerometer data. If you can find matched sections of running, which is again what I did for the PhD, use the GPS traces to find the matched sections of straight line high speed running. Um, and there's, and again, I didn't think I'd get enough of those in the game, but there are quite a few sections where you can get a good number of strides at a good speed when they're clearly 
um, in AFL at least, and I've um, and I've done the same, I think, with soccer football. And yeah, yeah, I have. Yep, and it's um, I've got good data from that. Done the same with American football, and it's less clear, but it's still pretty good. Um, so when you can find those match sections are running, um, and then you can take the accelerometer, stride to stride accelerometer stuff, then you can <clears throat> start to be um, a, a lot more. Uh, you can you can just look at it a lot more, lot more closely, um, and uh, I, th I think um, that is a good way of of not exceeding the the limits of what you can actually get from the unit. Um, that does take a bit of processing, um, but I, I find I think it's actually worthwhile in in looking at if you can come up with a number at the end that gives you an idea of where that athlete is sitting from a day-to-day, week-to-week um, quality of stride perspective. I, that's uh, it's absolute key for me, Alec, is and in a rehab setting you can, of course, um, perform the same you know, running track or task um, as long as it has a, a, an appropriate amount of linear high speed in there and then have a look at how the athlete has um, altered uh, his or her gait over time um, and finding it in a game is is the really important part because I think so, sometimes some of the measurements that we're looking at now um, that infer uh, the change of acceleration speed and you know, some of the uh, sort of companies that have released their own version of the sort of Osnatch stuff that was around a long time ago, I think there's just so many limitations with that in a multi-directional, uh, you know, field sport, I think we need to be really careful how much we take from that. So uh, I, I'm with you. The, the the part of your PhD, which was so impressive, was the um, the reproducible moments in a game um, so that you could compare apples with apples. Um, and I think that's the most the most important thing that we need to consider when we're when we're using this sort of technology on our on our players. Is it the same each week? Um, or the same slice of the the game each week. I think that's really important. Yeah, um, and as I said, it's, it's actually not too difficult to find, mm. um, but it does take a bit of behind the scenes processing. Um, and and just on that that metabolic power stuff, um, I've done a lot of uh, stuff with uh, Ted Polglas again on 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 this, and that um, is also something I, I think. Um, practitioners will will start using more when they become more comfortable with what it is they're what it is they're looking at because that's almost getting back to what we were talking about back in two thousand and six two thousand and seven around using accelerations to to um, to define the the movement the the time series excel, GPS accelerations to define the movement um, and it's a it's a worthwhile measure I just wish they'd named it something different. Like, yeah. Bananas or exactly. Like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, fantastic, mate. Look, we really, really appreciate your time um, today uh, in the middle of homeschooling as well, which uh, which we appreciate your, your flexibility with this. Uh, it's certainly been a fascinating conversation um, for me. Where can people reach out to you if they want to, ex you know, uh, continue the conversation around any of these factors? I know you're obviously pretty busy with the Phillies, but you always take time out to, to respond to my thousand and one questions over the last few years. 
Yeah, look, um, I've got a, a website, um, www.bioalchemy, B-I-O-A-L-C-H-E-M-Y.com.au, and there's a, uh, there's a contact function there. Um, you can um, send an email through that, um, or over Twitter is probably the, the other one. Um, yeah, and uh, look, it's, I'm, I'm very happy to, to respond to as many as I can because, um, you know, I'm getting to the age where, <laughs> where you're looking at how to um, grow the industry as well as growing yourself. So I'm, I'm very happy to be able to, to talk to as many, um, as many people as I can from wherever I to help as many people as I can. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a promised my boss that Philly that um, Rob Segan and I were giving him a shout out to say that he's he's fantastic at uh, at being very understanding and, and uh, of, of everything that we do um, so uh, one thing I didn't mention in the in the Philly stuff is that um, it's it's you need fantastic people on the ground and and uh, Rob's uh, Rob's a fantastic has taken on that well role so so well to be able to take what you do and, and turn it into something that's uh, useful on the ground. So I did promise him I'd give him a shout-out, so there it is, Rob. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, Alec, look, thank you very much. I, I've really, uh, really enjoyed uh, this conversation. Uh, it's been fascinating. So uh, wish you uh, all the best with your, uh, your bioalchemy and uh, your consulting and, and the fillies and, uh, and so on. I'm sure uh, you'll go from success to success, and we, we really appreciate uh, sharing, uh, sharing some of your knowledge with us today. So thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. It's been great.